Welcome to New Thinking for a New World, a Tilburg Foundation podcast. I am Alan Stoga, your host. Each week, I bring you conversations with people who think differently about the great issues that are shaping our world. Geopolitics, disruptive tech, mass migration, the changing climate, culture wars, all of it is grist for our mill. I hope you enjoy listening. I also hope you will let me know what you think and that you join the conversation at telbergfoundation.org. And now for today's episode of New Thinking for a New World. The American human rights activist Malcolm X once said, education is the passport to the future, for tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. If that's true, then America's future is in doubt because too many students aren't learning enough to have much of a future for themselves or for the country. Consider. In recent internationally comparative testing, U.S. eighth graders produced their lowest scores ever in math. One third were in the lowest performing category. Indeed, the United States has more students in the bottom group and fewer students in the top group than almost all other industrialized countries. Different tests, same result. Last year, about 40% of the country's high school seniors met none of the college readiness benchmarks for English, math, reading, or science, and 70% fell short of meeting the benchmarks for math. And although almost 90% of students graduate from high school, 45% of those same students say they feel unprepared for either college or the workforce. What are the problems and can they be fixed? Is it culture, politics, unions, resources? Too little money, too few teachers, too much social media, all or none of the above. One place to look for answers is in the San Francisco Bay Area. My guest today, Sean Benjamin, has been a principal of two different charter schools there since 2007 and has produced student successes instead of student failures. Welcome, Sean, to New Thinking for a New World. Thank you, Alan. It's good to be here. Let's start with what you told me when we first talked. You said that the successes you have helped produce over the years are not driven by new thinking, quite the opposite. Would you explain? So I was a principal of a charter school in the West Contra Costa School District that was recognized as a top 1% school compared to all schools in the U.S. by the U.S. News and World Report. And I don't think we did anything spectacular or new and different other than really care about our results and every single student in our building and looking at the data and figuring out what was working and what was not, and then adjusting to meet the needs of our students and working really hard towards those outcomes. And so I I don't think there is a silver bullet out there or a radical new design that is needed, but a group of data-driven, results-oriented, hardworking individuals striving towards student learning. I want to talk about all of that in detail, but for our non-American audience, what is a charter school? A charter school is a public school that is funded by state and federal dollars in much the way that a district school is, but it is chartered by a different authorizing body. So either a district, the county, or the state. 
and the school has its own board of directors and is not managed by the school district. So it has public money, but without public control in terms of the the management of how the school is organized. Correct. And charters may different, differ across the country. I'm chartered in California. Um, the school that I'm referring to was chartered by the district. Um, and the only thing that we shared were facilities, but all of our decisions and program and curriculum and instruction and pay scale was managed by our individual school and board of directors, not the school district. So in a sense, it's a kind of experiment to let some schools try to figure out if they can manage themselves and produce better outcomes. Yes, it is now an older experiment, um, probably around 20 years old. But the idea was, let's see if a different type of school managed by a different organizing structure can produce different types of results. I think over time, accountability and restrictions have come onto charter schools in much the same way that districts face. But in the very early days, there is very little oversight and very little compliance for a charter school. And now there's much more oversight and compliance, but still a little bit more autonomy than a neighboring district school. So let's go back to your particular case in the school that you led from 2007 on. Tell us a little bit about the students, about the challenges, about the outcomes. The school is located in Richmond, California. It's in a particular area of Richmond called the Iron Triangle. Richmond has some negative stereotypes about it as a low-income community with a high crime rate. And the Iron Triangle, which is where the school was located, um, was in the center of that. The majority of the students we served were low com- low income, living below um, the poverty level. Um, majority of students were are students of color, and the majority of students are first generation college bound students. And in the main, do they come from families with two parents, or or, or one parent, or what is what is the family structure? How, how support and and how supportive are the families? I think the family structures really differ from student to student. I think any family living in poverty is just in a stressful environment, whether you're in a single parent household or you have multiple families living in the same house, or if you're working multiple jobs to provide for your family or you don't have reliable transportation um, because of your financial status. I would say the majority of our families were in stressful situations just given um, their financial status. We definitely had a lot of single parent households. We had a lot of students living with grandparents. We had, um, we served a lot of immigrant families undocumented students. So 
Let's fast forward to the results. Tell us about what they actually accomplished, what, what you working with them actually accomplished. I'm very proud of our results. We, again, as I shared, recognized for being in the top 1% of high schools relative to all public high schools across the country. And that's looking at a lot of different measures. Part of that is just absolute achievement. And then a lot of that data was growth-oriented data. And we would graduate around 98% of our students and around 95% of our students would head off to college. And then we're tracking the graduation rates from college um, by the time I finished my career. Um, So we really thought about what was the experience like for our students in elementary and middle school and how can we make high school be a different experience for our students, that when they come in the door, they need to know and feel that school is different for them. And that starts with us having incredibly high expectations for our students, but then also a deep belief that every single one of our students can succeed. And the reason why they may have struggled up to that point can vary. And then as a school, we needed to address all of those different needs, um, whether it was self-confidence or it was an academic skill, or if it was a undocumented student who didn't see a path forward in their future, or if it was students just lacking some basic needs and how can we help support a student to have stable housing. And so we strongly believe that if we can identify all of the barriers to our students' success and then build a program around meeting those needs that then we can have really high academic expectations for our students and then our students will rise to to meet those expectations and are fully capable to be able to do that. And that was the experience over the last 16 years. That's what actually happened. I started as an intern in the, the school's third year, left in the school's fourth year, and then became principal in the fifth year. Um, I would say the school was on the brink of closing in that fifth year. And then for the next 11 years, we worked very hard to improve achievement results and school outcome results um, one step at a time over those next 11 years. And by the last few years, um, right up into COVID hit, we had a very high number of graduation rate and students heading off to college. So results-oriented, data-driven, student-focused, uh, flexible. It, it certainly sounds like it's not a one-size-fits-all, but it's, it's a la carte. What, what, what does this student need to achieve? Mm-hmm. And high expectations. Yes. And then going back to just what is a charter school, I think charter schools can have some flexibility that can be harder, I think, in a larger district. But we could ask ourselves what's working, what's not working, and then pivot pretty quickly to improve our program in service of students. And that was the ethos of our school. Um, When I would hire 
people, a question I always would ask is, how is your entrepreneurial spirit? <laughs> because we were constantly building and designing and changing for improvement. And that can be stressful for some people who like um, stability or the status quo. And so we would have a staff that was really focused on wanting to do right by students and student outcomes and were along the journey to building an incredible school. How big was the school? How many students? How many staff? More or less? 600 students with 150 students in each grade and 60 staff members. And is that, I don't know the student-teacher ratios in California. Uh, is that an unusual is it unusually large? Is it unusually small? Did you have did you have more resources than the district schools or other schools? The philosophy of my organization was to operate on state and federal dollars so that we could be a model for other schools and that for other district schools and that it wasn't come down to the amount we were spending per student. Um, California schools in general have a pretty low funding formula relative to other states. So um, operating on just what was provided by state and federal funds. So nothing extraordinary in terms of resources, more or less the similar resources that a comparable school otherwise in the state might have. Yes. Were the teachers comparable? First of all, I think teachers are incredible everywhere, um, especially in this post-pandemic time when um, teachers are hard to come by. Um, I think I worked really hard to find the best teachers I could find. I think that was probably my number one priority as a principal. And still to this day, I think who you hire makes all the difference. And I spent a tremendous amount of time in hiring the right people and then building a team and then building a teacher's capacity. Uh, we ended up hiring a lot of teachers in their f first one to three years of the profession and felt like if we could hire someone for the right, with the right mindset and the right belief in our students and uh, humility, but also a desire to grow and take feedback. We felt like if we could find that person, then we could help them become a great teacher. And that oftentimes when you're further along in your career, it can be harder to, to change your ways. And so we had a lot of school-wide practices where we would ask everyone to follow certain expectations um, for, for the common good of the school, which again is can be pretty different in a lot of schools. In a lot of schools, you go in your classroom, you shut your door, you do your own thing. And we had a lot of school-wide practices. So looking for someone who really wanted to be a part of that type of community, hiring really mission-driven, mission-aligned people. And so, yeah, I think we had some of the best teachers um, because they were so deeply committed to our students and deeply committed to our school, but then also very driven by being the best educators they could be and just constantly working on improving their craft and skill. Were the teachers unionized? 
And does that, do you think in theory, should that matter or not matter? So there's two questions there. One, objective fact, and two, what do you think about unions in schools? That may be as close to an unfair question as I get, but we'll see. Yes. <laughs> um, how diplomatic should I be? Not at all. However diplomatic you think you need to be should be, should be the answer. When I came as a principal resident in my third year, the school was not unionized. And then I left the school in that fourth year and the teachers unionized in that fourth year. And then I came back as the principal in the fifth year. And, and that was the year they were negotiating around the contract. So when I became principal, there was a union. Um, just given how I am as a human being, that was just really hard for me because I think of myself as the champion of my teachers. I am a an athlete that played team sports and I was always um, seeing myself as the like the the unionizer of my team of like how can we work together to be the best that we can be i have led group trips of like mountaineering trips and how can we all get to the summit together so to the union for me represented um this third party advocating for my staff better than i could advocate for them and i just didn't think that was True, and that was really hard for me to accept because I wanted to be that champion. Um, I care about everyone's well-being. I care about my staff. I care about making decisions in service of staff, and that that leads to well-being for students. Um, eventually, this union disbanded. I think it was around six or seven years after because the union head, who was a teacher, did not feel like that was needed anymore under my leadership and just dissolved itself. And so then the last, let's see, seven to eight years, we operated without a union. I, I think unions can be hard in schools. I think, um, I think the flexibility, the, the ability to be flexible and respond to student needs and school needs and even staff needs I think is super important. And I think the union can make that more challenging because it just slows down the process. And I think it can um, handcuff schools in making best decisions for, for students. I think if you, though, have an administrator that isn't taking into account the needs of staff, and that can also be hard on a school. And I know that's why unions sometimes exist. Thanks for listening so far. I hope you're enjoying the conversation as much as I have. If you haven't already, please subscribe on the platform of your choice and rate us on Apple Podcast. Now back to today's discussion sponsored by the Stavros Niarchus Foundation, SNF. I want to segue to curriculum and textbooks and, and those kinds of decisions. Certainly in some states, I'm thinking Florida, Texas, only because they have big headline controversies at the moment. Uh, the state decides how certain issues should be addressed. Uh, the state decides what books should be in the library or what books should be in the curriculum. How much flexibility 
did you have as a principal in this charter school to shape the curriculum for your students? 100%. I really felt like a CEO of my school building, which I think is very unique. And I think why I stayed a principal for as long as I did, because I felt like I was able to make really hard and really important decisions on behalf of my students and staff and felt a lot of responsibility in that. And I know not a lot of principals have that. Principals are often referred to as the middle manager. They're answering to their students and staff, but then are being told um, what to do from, from the district or if they're in a charter management organization from the superintendent or CEO. I didn't feel that way, and I, I felt like I was able to make a lot of autonomous decisions, which I really appreciated. Um, over my time, though, as principal, we were held accountable to state tests. It was the STAR test when I first started, and then that went away. And then towards the end of my career, it was the Smarter Balance exam that what is a national test that all schools are, all public schools need to take. Um, I agree with that. I think I like having a national measure. I like having some level of accountability. And I think it's generally for an external exam. It's a, it's a rigorous exam that tries to get at um, meaningful student understanding, which I think is hard to capture in a test. Sorry, I say all that because even though I could make my curricular decisions, we would make um, decisions that supported the Common Core and performance on the SBAC exam. So I could make decisions, but always made those decisions aligned to those standards. And how did your students do on those standardized tests? I think relative to our neighboring schools, they did strong. That is not, um, but relative to California, um, not as strong as we would like. And so there's, there's definitely st still growth to be had. Let's talk about the students a little bit. The caricature that many people have, many older people have of students today is they're obsessed with social media, that they are... Uh, they interact with the world often through their devices as opposed to otherwise that they learn what they learn through social media more than perhaps than other ways. How, and that may be a caricature. Let me start and admit that might be a caricature. If it's not a caricature, how'd you deal with it? First of all, we don't allow students to be on their phones um, when they cross to the threshold of our school. Um, and so for the eight or so hours that they are with us, they are not texting and not on social media. And I think that helps. I think that helps students um, in, engage in personal relationships, you know, making friends, talking with each other at lunch, um, being focused in class. And I... That's the case now, the school I'm at now, and also the school I was at. And I know a lot of schools don't have that policy, and that feels 
that would feel very hard for me um, as a school leader to see students on their phones throughout the school day. Um, I think we... Let me just interrupt, and I apologize to interrupt. How do you enforce that? Because I think it's the best idea I've heard in a long time. But how do you make it work? Well, I'll say, I'll say this back to like what it was one of our successes. I just think it's really important that when a school says that they're going to do something, that they fall, are able to follow through on doing that thing, and that that and that's how students know that they're in a safe place and that they are being cared for. And, and that was just really important to me as a school leader, that if, if we're going to have a policy, we need to be able to follow through on that policy because it, I think, helps students sort of relax and become the teenagers that, that they are. Um, in, in like a positive, in a positive way. And so we have a lot of, things like that. We have a dress code um, and just, and certain policies that we ask students to abide by. So a few ways that we accomplish the cell phone policy is we greet students at the front door. And when they come into school, we ask them to put their phones away. We have people out on supervision who have cell phones can't be like in your pocket or on your person. If we see a cell phone, we ask them to put it in the, in their backpack and um, we have a school-wide uh, merit demerit system. If you're on your phone, you get a, or if you if you are seen on your phone, you get a demerit. That those demerits add into or um, add up into a into a system of points. Uh, we train all of our staff quite extensively about how to respond to behaviors that we don't want, but also how to encourage the behaviors that we do want, and so. Students just know they can't be on their phones, and then there's a, a follow through system. If they are like if if they're on their phones, let's say twice, then it they're interacting with the dean of students and having a parent conversation. So there's a system built around that policy with the anticipation that students are teenagers and they're going to push back, and we just have to be prepared to how are we going to respond should that happen, but then also how can we proactively support our students to make the right decision? How do parents respond to that kind of, want a better word, that kind of discipline, that kind of rule setting and rule, not just setting, but far more importantly, enforcing that, that the accountability that you've described? Parents like it, dislike it, have trouble with it. What's been your experience over the years? Uh, my experience is that students, uh, sorry, families are very grateful for our structure and our systems and our support and our communication. I think, unfortunately, a lot of neighboring schools might have fights or stu- or might have long-term substitutes or have students on their phone or a lot of bullying and and parents are helpless if they don't have school choice they have to send their student to the neighboring school and so that's an idea of charter schools is to introduce school choice for families and so i think families who send their student to us or have their students come to us are extremely grateful for the structure that we provide and there's of course always pushback um, here or there, but on the whole, 
families are incredibly grateful for our school. If you had a magic wand, maybe that's the way to ask the question. What would you add to the mix of what you're doing to cope with all of that? I'm going to answer the question because it's a fun question to answer. Um, I just, I am someone who, like, I know these things aren't going to come true. And so I have to solve our dilemma and the challenge that we're in without knowing that there's going to be a savior coming. <laughs> and, and I, and I, and I say that because the two things I'm going to say I, that I would like to have are not, are never going to happen. And so how are we going to be successful without that? Um, I think, I think at least in California or at least in the Bay area where the cost of living is high, I think finding people post pandemic who want to stay in education or go into the teaching profession feels pretty, it feels low. Um, and there are just teacher shortages. No magic wand. I got it. And that has always felt like a challenge, but it feels very real right now as people think about, um, have reexamined their life and their work choices and want more flexibility or work from home. And so I, I think thinking about how to attract people into the field of education feels like a California issue. And I know a national issue that I think we need to be talking about. I don't think money is ever the issue, but I think you're really asking people to be a martyr to enter education solely out of their goodness of their hearts without um, compensating them on par with some other professions that people work hard in. I think teachers work, you know, teachers work their school day, but then they go home and then they work the the evening shift planning and grading. And so how to compensate. I think if education or te education compensated people at an equal rate as other industries, there'd be a lot more people entering the profession. Um, that is probably what I would want to change is how to attract teachers. The other thing that I haven't <laughs> um, figured out, and I do wonder if there is a, a new way of thinking about this, is what? how does a teacher's day look different when all of the other, a lot of other professions are reexamining like work from home or a hybrid approach that can make teaching feel more sustainable um, on the day in and day out. And the reason why I'm focused on teachers is because I strongly believe um, if you have great teachers, then you're then you're going to have great student results and you need teachers to be in the profession, stay in the profession. The longer teachers can stay at a school, the more I think positive impact we can have on student achievement and student learning. So last question, what you've described in terms of the approach that you have followed, the successes you've produced, uh, the very difficult problems you've coped with, do you think it can be replicated? Yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely. I am, I am no one special. <laughs> Just getting kids to leave their phones in their backpacks makes you something, someone special to most, most of the people I know, but I mean, but I'm being quite serious. Uh, clearly you've built something and are building something still that has been successful. 
in the context of an educational system which measured by outcomes is anything but successful. So we need we need success stories like this and we need to replicate them. I think there are a lot of there's so many different school designs out there and so many different ways of doing school that I do think can impact student learning. I think what I think is the starting place is students need to feel safe. The campus needs to be safe. Students need to come into the classroom and there's learning happening from bell to bell. And those are some basic expectations, but I don't think that that happens in a lot of schools. And I think having clear systems, routines, expectations, having common practices, having a mission aligned staff, having people working towards common goals. I think all of that is required. Um, I don't think it's unique to me, um, but I think that is essential to running a strong school. And then once you have that, then what is happening within the four walls of the classroom to make sure that um, students are getting the rigorous education that they deserve. Sean, thank you very much for this conversation. There's too little optimism about education. And even worse, there's too little efforts to fix what's broken. So congratulations on at least making one place produce. And and maybe there are the opportunities to replicate it. So again, thank you very much, Sean. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Thinking for New World. I'm Alan Stoga, podcast host, and I look forward to your joining our next conversation. Remember, tell us what you think at telbergfoundation.org.